So looking at Psalm 96 here, uh, it starts off, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. And we sometimes might think of this as referring to, okay, this is a command for us to write songs. But what this seems to be referring to here is a lot of these words in Psalm 96 are taken directly from 1 Chronicles 16. And what's happening in 1 Chronicles 16, this is where, do you remember the Philistines had captured the ark? It was away for a long time. Then they bring it back to one spot in Israel, but in Kiriath Arba. And then David takes his men there. And they're like, we need to bring this back to Jerusalem because the ark should be in Jerusalem. And then there's a story where Uzzah touches it. He gets killed. David dances, takes off his outer garment. His wife gets mad. Um, and they proclaim then this song once they've reestablished the ark in the tent of David. It's not in the temple yet. It's in what's called the, the booth of David or the tent of David. And a song really similar to this one is sung. It's not exactly the same, but really similar. And we can't be sure about this, but the Jewish tradition for this particular song and how Psalm 96 made it into our collection of the Psalter is that when Israel was exiled, and then do you remember they came back under Ezra and Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, and they rebuilt the second temple, uh, the tradition has it that this psalm was repurposed or retooled, adapted for this new occasion of praising God with the new temple that they had just created. So just like this was a psalm for a coming to a tabernacle with the ark, so it has that newness, but it's been transposed into a new situation of now rededicating the temple. So it's, when he says, sing a, to the Lord a new song, he's almost saying, let's sing this song in a new way. We're going to sing this song that you guys remember from when the tabernacle or for when the ark came into the booth let's sing this song in a new way so that's a bit of the background on this song and uh just a reminder again if anyone wants to add a comment anytime ask a question anytime just shoot up your hand and feel very free to do so if not i'll just plow forward sing to the lord a new song sing to the lord all the earth sing to the lord bless his name that call again for us to sing Singing isn't optional in the Christian life. It's, we don't do it just because we think it's fun and some people enjoy it. Singing is a call of how we praise God. And singing is special more than just proclaiming words. There's an affection and an emotion that comes with singing that adds a particular weightiness or power and just resonates with our soul and spirit in a very special way. Uh, as we look at through this psalm, the thing I want us to have in our mind as a theme, if you will, is how missional this psalm is. This psalm has really significant impact and effect for how we think about missions and the gospel going forth in this world. So in that way, it could be really fitting for what we heard in the sermon this morning about uh, proclaiming the gospel, having it true in our lives, and then wanting to see it true in others' lives. Because right in this first verse we have, Sing to the Lord all the earth. So if you think about it, if we were to sing this, we would be singing a cry and a prayer, earth, sing to the Lord. All nations, all peoples of the earth, join us in singing to the Lord. There's a uh, famous quote from John Piper who says that missions exists because worship doesn't. There's peoples in this world that don't worship the one true God, and God is deserving of all their worship. 
And so part of the heart thrust of missions is to see more and more people join us in singing praises to our king. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Again, that parallelism you see in all those lines. Sing, sing, sing. And this happens quite a few times in this psalm. Repeated verbs that kind of section out this psalm. This is like the sing section. And at the end of verse 2 it says, Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. Proclaim and declare. Proclaim and and declare. To proclaim the good news, that's the gospel, of God's salvation from day to day. This word proclaim could be thought of as recount or retell. And what an important thing for us, even in light of the message of the importance of the gospel in our own lives daily, to daily be recounting the good news of the gospel. One of the commentators I was reading said that to, to, to wake up and have, as it were, the good news of God burst into your mind, to have it be that last lingering thought before you go to bed. What a wonderful way to live to be filled with good news, to be filled with glad tidings that we proclaim to our own soul. And then as we are filled with the joy that comes, the hope that comes from rehearsing, recounting, proclaiming the gospel, it overflows into verse 3 there, declaring his glory among the nations. Because if you're full, then you'll overflow. And often we settle with far too little of gospel joy in our own hearts, and no wonder it doesn't flow out. Like Pastor Mike was saying, that the things you're really full of in the moment, it overflows. If you saw a movie that was really exciting, you want to tell someone how great it was and encourage them to join in. So when we're filled with the gospel, that's when it overflows. Any thoughts or questions so far? No? Good. Okay. Um, And his wonders among the people. Uh, Declaring God's glory, that's declaring who he is. What makes God beautiful? His character, his goodness, his love, his truthfulness. And also his wonders. That is what he's done. And in all our praise, you can really basically break down praise into these two elements. Praising God for who he is in and of himself. And then what he's done. What he's done in creation. What he's done in redemption. What he's done in sanctification. Um, who he is and what he's done really marry together to become the heartbeat of how we praise God. And sometimes we err to one or the other. We sometimes just focus on what God has done. He's saved us. He's blessed us. But we forget to proclaim him who he is and praise him for his loving kindness, for his holiness, justice, and truth. Four. Again, this is really similar if you remember Psalm 95 last week. Yeah, Chris. I like that in there also when it says the wonders. And I think mm. growing up in Christian homes, Christian families, a lot of times we stop wondering or stop being in awe mm. because we take it as commonplace. And I think it's really good to be intentional at times just think you know, the magnitude of what God has done. Mm. Yeah, that, yeah, go ahead. Um, I always wonder, how do we bless his name? Uh, it's interesting. Yeah. We talk about him blessing us. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that word bless, it's a really flexible word in the Hebrew. Here, um, when I looked this up, it's actually similar to the word to kneel, and to kneel with a hand raised. Um, so it's almost that same idea of giving honor or giving glory via these elements of praise. 
So we don't bless God by just saying bless you. It's God is blessed or in a sense you could think takes a joy in himself when we proclaim the goodness of God, who he is, what he's done. So God is blessed, not that he needs that to make him happy, but it, in a sense, you could think brings a smile to God's face when we praise him, and that's what blessing him is. At least as far as I understand it. What do you think? Make sense? But when he blesses us, then what? Yeah, I think, so that's where this word gets used in various ways. So I think we think of God's blessing on us as mostly like his favor. So when we think of that blessing in Numbers 6, that the Lord bless you and keep you, and that idea then making his face to shine upon you, giving peace. So when I think of when we pray, God bless this person, I think what we're saying is be favorable to, to them. Give them the blessing of your face towards them, to watch them, to guide them, to keep them. So I would say God's blessing to us is not exactly synonymous with how we bless God. I think those are two different ways we might use the term, you could say. And um, yeah, good point, Chris, about the wonder. It's like if you've known someone that, say, lives where they have a really beautiful view from their back deck, and you come, you're like, wow. And they're like, oh, yeah, I kind of forgot. Like, we do have an amazing view, but we see it every day and forget. But once you have someone else sometimes come along, it's like, you're right. This is actually stunning and spectacular. And that's part of the one anothering that we remind each other. And I think even as we read, um, say, Brad and Michelle's testimonies today, it's like, wow, God, you save people. That's so awesome. Like, I want to wonder at what you've done in their life. And it reminds me of what you've done in my life. For... Here's why we want to declare, for God is great, verse uh, 4 there, and greatly to be praised. We talked about that a bit last week. He is to be feared above all gods. And this is going to be an interesting tie into verse 5 here. I really like this. God is to be feared above all gods. That's a claim to exclusive worship. The exclusive worship of Jehovah. Um, Every single time, actually, the word Lord is used in this Psalm, it is the proper name for God, his personal name, Jehovah. So it's just, it's always, I find it helpful thinking that way. It personalizes it. Um, For Jehovah is great and greatly to be praised, feared above all gods. And it's interesting, I learned this week that when you think about it, um, when Christianity broke into a pagan empire, it was really at odd with this claim of exclusive worship. Because in the ancient Greek world, and as in the ancient Semitic world where the Hebrews were, it was always whatever tribe you were a part of, you worshiped the gods of that people. You moved to a different city, you worshiped that god. You moved again, you worshiped that god. And to have a god that we call everyone to worship was a wild idea. And the difference in the Old Testament is that people still saw God as confined to an ethnic people. But in the New Testament, that our god is the god of all ethnicities, all ages, all peoples. Is really a wonderful claim. And people might say that's arrogant. Why would you proclaim your God's the only way? He's the only true God. Uh, What it says in verse 5. For all the gods of the peoples are idols. We worship God as the one true God because every other God is an idol. And that Hebrew word there for idol is um, a form of the word for vanity. And that's really what every idol in this world is. It's a vain idol. It's a vain thing to put your hope in. It's useless. It's a piece of wood. It can't help you. A piece of stone that's not going to comfort your soul. Idols are vanity. 
And we have the same message we can bring to the world as we think of and talk about uh, contemporary idolatry. And this is uh, something that kind of often strikes me. As you know, when preachers often talk about, well, you know, like we don't worship figurines in our own land, but we have our own idols like cars and sports and money and stuff. Um, I think that isn't really getting to the heart of it. I think the heart of idolatry in our own land is that um, the service of self. And all these things are just symptoms of service of self. And idolatry could really be fined as, um, as Romans 1 says, it's trading the creator for the creature. So instead of God being our highest end, our highest desire and goal, that gets flipped and the things he's made become our highest ends and desires. And even though um, in uh, Greek philosophy and even through the medieval philosophy of the Christian church, there was always this thought of what is the highest good. And the amount you're satisfied in your own heart and happy is in determination for how perfectly good the good you're pursuing is. So even people who pursue good things in this life, say like raising a good family, um, serving people well in your work, it always leaves a lot to be desired because none of those are the highest good. So they never fulfill fully the desires of our hearts and they end up being vain idols to pursue. But when we have the creator, verse five, but the Lord Jehovah made the heavens. Our God is the creator of every other good that anyone else in this world pursues. But we can enjoy those things for good, but then go to the creator as our highest end and our highest good, and only there can our hearts truly be satisfied and truly fulfilled. And even that will be imperfect for us in this life because we have remaining sin, but to have that final blessed vision of God where we see him as he is without just having to see by faith, then that will be perfect happiness and perfect felicity. And so what an evangelistic message for us to take that you're never going to find the true happiness in anything you're pursuing in this world. But through Christ, we can find the highest good, that final substance of the heart that we're all longing after. We have a wonderful message. Uh, Verse 6 here, kind of a new section we're coming into. The Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. So that's a parallelism or a couplet there. First honor, that could be splendor and majesty, which could be glory. This honor and majesty goes before him. So the picture here is a sort of kingly picture. Before the king, he, like, you know when you say to someone, your reputation precedes you? Uh, what, what you've heard about them, their, what you can think about of them as a person goes before them. With God, what precedes God is his glory, his majesty, his honor, his glory. These things are before him. Wherever that king goes, are the king of nations, the creator, honor and majesty are there. But because they, these things go before him, then where he is, that is, in his sanctuary, in his throne room, that's where strength and beauty are. This is a really, really cool throne room picture of Just if you could imagine the king on his throne, what does a throne room represent? It represents strength and beauty. It's always those tall pillars, a big, strong, high throne. It represents the power and strength of the king. But then it's usually gold, ornate, carvings to represent the beauty. 
And this is what we have in God's kingly sanctuary, his strength and his beauty. And what is the sanctuary of God but the place where his presence dwells, ultimately in heaven, but we know that God is with his people in their worship. And our public corporate worship of God becomes, as it were, a throne room of God, where the king is present, delighting in the worship of his people. And that means what we have in our midst when we're praising and listening to God's word is strength and beauty. And these two things are so necessary. Just think of conversion that uh, when God converts a heart, what an amazing work of his power and strength to change a dead heart to a living heart. But it's not an arbitrary thing. It's also a change of beauty that when blind eyes are opened, what once seemed dishonorable and ignoble to them in God is now seen as beautiful. And all of a sudden Christ's cross and his death doesn't seem silly and Why would anyone pin their life on that? But all of a sudden, through the Spirit's work and the King's presence, wow, Christ died for me. That is the most incredible truth. It's a beautiful truth. And power and beauty go together when the King is present. So what a delight for us to be able to join in corporate worship in the the throne room of God, where strength and beauty are so present. Uh, any, Any thoughts or questions for anybody? Uh, Verse 7, we're thinking of who God is, his glory, his beauty, and now here's the application. Here's the result. Here's what we're looking for in this. Give to the Lord. This word give here, you could think of it as a scribe. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Three gives again, just like we had those three sings in the beginning. Give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Now, this is really fascinating. That the call of a missional psalm is that in light of God's beauty, glory, and holiness, that the families of the peoples would give unto the Lord the glory and honor that's due to his name. And this relates to family worship. And if you're, say, in a church that really you were raised knowing about family worship, you maybe had devotions after dinner, and perhaps you've thought, like I have, where is the actual biblical command for this family worship thing? And people bring up um, Ephesians 6, raise your children in the discipleship of the Lord, or Deuteronomy 6, um, to have the law in your mouth to teach it to your children. And you maybe think, well, yeah, we can teach our children God's word in lots of different ways, but why do we have to have this special time of family worship? Uh, Here's what Richard Baxter taught me about this that really helped it make sense to me. Um, It's that God is not just to be worshipped by individuals, but he's to be worshipped by families as well as by churches. So God is called, you're called to worship God as an individual believer, but God also calls families to worship him as families, and God calls congregations to worship him as congregations and these are in a sense different entities in God's sight there's this a theme in the scripture of corporate solidarity and part of one of the reasons why we're Presbyterian is because we believe that households can follow the Lord as Joshua said for me and my house we follow the Lord 
So to have a house that not just follows the Lord, but our household worships God. So how does your household worship God, but by actually being together and worshiping God? Namely, performing acts of worship, such as prayer, praise, reading and hearing of God's word, discussion of the same. Um, So the reason you should worship God as families is as simple as this. It's because you can. Because worshiping God as a family is different than each one in your family worshiping God by him or herself. And so if God can receive the honor of a family, then he deserves to receive the honor of a family as a family. Just like God deserves to receive the honor of a congregation as a congregation. Does that make sense? Is that you guys following? Okay, so in this, there is, was there a something? No. Tie yeah. it into what, how, what Jesus says is our family. Right, the family of God. So we, we, have, we do have a new principle in the New Testament that the family has been vastly expanded. As we read this morning, there's no male, female, barbarian, Scythian. Um, in our local congregations, we ought to see a family that is significantly vaster than one ethnicity, such as it largely was in Israel. But the New Testament never invalidates the household principle that households are still units. So when we see households getting baptized... Um, it doesn't really matter whether there was infants there when we debate infant baptism or whatever, but that's just that concept of households as a thing. Um, it's, the New Testament doesn't split it up into be its only individuals. There's still, it seems, a household principle when we hear about the household of Crispus or the household of Lydia or the household of Cornelius. This principle of a household as a unit that can worship God as a unit seems to hold over. Right. Does, that, does that answer anything? Yeah, so this is, it, the principle has expanded and is more beautiful now, but this idea of families being called to give to the Lord glory and strength is still part of what we're called to do. And it's really interesting. It says, to give him the glory due to his name, to honor God with the glory that he deserves. Um, I like this idea of giving God what it is his due. This is the philosophical term people talked about with justice. That justice means giving someone what there's due. Their due is. So if someone, say, sold you something, you owe them money. You have an obligation to them. And God, by virtue of being our creator, and even more so our redeemer, we actually owe him a debt. A debt, not of good works, because we can never pay, pay that. Um, although there is a sense in which you could say that. But we owe God a debt of glory that's due to him. He deserves all our praise. He deserves all our life. He deserves all our service, everything we have for how wonderful he is. And this call goes out again to the nations. This is a call, give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. So as we think of the gospel going forth to other nations, we're thinking of we want to see families of the earth worship God. We want to see new churches formed, new families of saints coming together to worship God because, again, as we said at the beginning, God deserves all their worship. So when they're not worshiping God, they are never paying that debt. And we want to see the gospel come and transform them into worshipers, as Ephesians 1 says, predestined to the praise of his glorious grace. We're predestined to praise God. And then continuing the same thing, bring an offering And come into his courts. The word offering there is not the one that refers to a burnt offering. But the one that refers to a thank offering. 
um, which you can see in Hebrews 13, we, we bring a sacrifice of praise, the Bible tells us, a sacrifice of praise that blesses his name. We come into his courts and are called, oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. If we're in a holy sanctuary, God's worshiped by holy people, people whose hearts have been purified by faith, been purified from sin, to worship him now dressed in those white righteous robes of Jesus Christ, seen as pure and blameless in his sight. That's the clothing we really come to church in. It's not whether you're wearing a suit or not. It's are you really dressed in the righteous robes of Jesus Christ? Tremble before him all the earth. In light of this glory and beauty of God, should we not be in awe and wonder at just the vastness, the power, the beauty? It should cause, in a sense, almost a trembling before us. Another neat section here, starting in verse 10. Another call for us, not to sing now, but to say among the nations, again, there's that nation theme, that the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. He reigns definitively, even if you have not yet become subjects of his reign and subjects of his kingdom. The Lord reigns over the whole world in general, but he reigns over the people who've submitted to him in particular. Because we've actually submitted to that reign and can live out of that reign. But we don't just say that. And we want to declare this to the world. The, the Lord reigns. The world is also firmly, it's established under the reign of God. It's established under his dominion. And it can't be moved. This kingdom will have no end. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the kingdom in the church. And God shall judge the peoples righteously. Um, and we're going to see this call again at the end that God will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. And I want to talk about this idea of judgment for a bit because my whole paradigm of this got totally overhauled um, a couple months ago. Because when, when I'd always read verses like this, God will judge the peoples righteously or the last verse, for he's coming, he's coming to judge the earth, he shall judge the peoples with righteousness. When I thought of that word judgment or that word judge, I realized that I always think of that in terms of the final sentence of the judgment. That when we're talking about this, it means, oh, right, God's going to return one day and all the wicked will be judged and cast into hell. But this idea of judgment is not just the sentence. If you think of a judicial system, judging and judiciaries and civil law in a nation is far more than just passing sentences. The, the sentence comes after the judgment. And sentencing is the very last step in the process. So when we think of the wicked, the sentence they're due, or for the righteous, our sentence does not happen until after we die. But there is, therefore, still a very relevant way in which God is judging the world. Because when you think of the work of a judge, that is your whole system of life and law in a nation. We, we know how important it is to have Supreme Court justices that are righteous because that affects so much in our life. And when you see countries that don't have good laws, that have unjust laws, how much it corrupts a society. So perhaps instead of thinking, when we think of God's coming to judge the nations, and we think of this in a missional context... God's coming to judge the nations means that all these practices of godless cultures, all their worship, all their lifestyle is going to come before the judge 
and God will judge whether it is righteous or unrighteous. Their idols will come before him, and God says, no, those are not true gods worth worshiping. Their practices come before, and God's judgment comes and says, that's not the way to live. The judge comes and says, here's the way to live. Here's the way of life. Walk in it. Here are righteous laws according to truth. Here's a lifestyle that best conduces to your happiness and your joy. So judgment is far more of a holistic concept, and it's really an act of the king. It's underneath God's kingly reign to bring about a revolution in how we live, to bring about true justice and righteousness in society. You guys following that? Does that make sense? Any questions? So is God like currently judging? Would that include like um, think of a national judiciary? Then you've got like law enforcement and all that, and jails, and I guess that's more after the sentencing. Um, so maybe like um, part of God being the judge of the earth is like enforcing His rules even in real time. Yeah, I'd say so. Like when we think about how God has delegated authority, there's different ways in which God implements judgment on a more human level. And when you think about instruments, I guess, of sentencing in life, you can see three particular ones in Scripture that God gives to the different spheres of judgment. So. God gives to parents the rod um, as a symbol of the tool of enacting judgment, showing how to live with their children. Here's a right way to live. Here is the wrong way to live. And we actually have an instrument of authority in the rod that shows that we have parental authority to actually see that you live this way. God has given to the church the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, It's not a physical weapon in any way, but the keys of the kingdom to open and unlock the door of heaven through church discipline. God gives a means of judgment to that authority to the elders of the church. And then to the state, we see that God gives the symbol of the sword in 1 Corinthians 13. God hasn't given them the sword as a tool of their authority. And I think each of these authorities are accountable to God to how they use their authority and whether they're using their tools of authority to enforce righteousness or enforce wickedness. And the righteousness of the authority corresponds to how well they actually enact God's justice and righteousness in the world. Does that answer that at all? Yeah. Do you have have any thoughts on that? No, I'm just thinking like... um, Um, often in the Bible talk about how the wicked are prospering and whatnot, and it doesn't seem like God is judging them from our perspective. Right. Um, but, um, in a sense, um, letting them be prosperous, you could say, is a type of judgment. Um, so I don't know if, um, how that all ties in. Right. I think what it is, like, the judgment has come verbally, right? Via the word is the sword that brings judgment, but... That sentence won't be passed until the next life. So when the wicked prosper, uh, there's a sense in which they've already been judged by the word of God as wicked. But sometimes there's no sentence on that. Like the sentencing comes in the afterlife. And so I think when I think about this in a missional context, God's judgment coming into the world is us proclaiming just the truth of the word. Because when God's truth comes, it divides right and wrong. So it comes to the nations and... Um, I'm, in a, I'm in a medieval church history class right now, and, we, and you keep seeing again and again in Europe 
how the gospel comes to these pagans that are just so wicked and have such idolatrous practices. And the gospel judges it as wrong and whole nations um, come to Christianity. A lot of it was probably false conversions, but just the gospel is a sword that at least declares the right from the wrong, though we're not called to enforce it now um, through violence or any such thing. And when God's judgment comes and actually brings righteousness to a nation, it brings righteousness to a heart, it exalts someone, the um, result in the world is this beautiful illustration in verses 11 and 12, to have the heavens rejoice, the earth be glad, let the sea roar in all its fullness, let the field be joyful in all that is in it, then all the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord. That creation... Um, metaphorically celebrates when God's justice and kingdom comes into this world. It's a personification, if you will. Yeah, go ahead. Um, just backing up a little bit, I was thinking of that. What a, what a great calling we have as Christians to be that light in the world mm. with that and how that light does change the world. We can so easily hold it under a bushel, so to speak, especially in public arenas. Mm. You know, um, because we are often judged, right? Yeah. And yet, if we bring God's light into those arenas, what a difference that can make um, to every, everyone around. You know, and even our kids in the schools and wherever they're at, to teach them to be that light. That can change a whole environment. Mm-hmm. And we've seen that too. Mm-hmm. That's where the light of God can change a whole environment. Um, I think that's yeah, and how often like, scared are we to speak the truth, but not realizing that truth is on our side. And so it, that's actually what brings freedom to people, is when the truth corresponds to the words we say. If they align with truth and reality, they're going to have tremendous weight and influence, but we're often scared of the judgment we'll receive, right? Absolutely. And that is this creation celebration that even though creation groans now waiting for its liberation... There's, in a sense, a pre-celebration whenever God's justice comes into the world. And just the last verse here as we close. For he is coming. He is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. Uh, Two things quick, if I can get them in. God's coming. This is a really, really, uh, I want to give you a helpful way to look at Old Testament prophecy, which is partly what this is. God's coming, when you think of it in the Old Testament, can usually be seen in three ways. It's a triple fulfillment. One is the coming of Christ. When we're seeing here, God is coming to judge the earth. He came and definitively judged the world in Christ through his death death and resurrection, judged the principalities and powers. That's usually the first fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Secondly, it's being fulfilled in the church. So Christ, in a sense, comes and brings judgment and righteousness everywhere the gospel reaches. It's being fulfilled through the church age, but it will be definitively fulfilled at the second coming of Christ when full and final judgment is rendered and the coming is at last. So the first coming of Christ, progressively throughout the church age, and lastly, when Christ comes. This is how his judgment is coming into the world now in these three areas. And he will judge the world with righteousness, no unjust laws, no unjust guidance for life, and the peoples with his truth. And just to end here, uh, the beauty of justice that's founded on truth 
And this is where we have such an advantage as Christians when we speak to issues of even culture and politics is because when we're thinking of justice in the social realm, justice is only just when it accords with the truth. Um, an, uh, an example here might help is that if you are believing a lie such as that unborn children aren't people, the result will be unjust laws that therefore it's okay to kill them. If you believe lies such that gender is a fluid concept and there's no definitive um, difference between male and female, it'll lead to unjust ways of working in the world that don't actually give people the greatest liberty and freedom. If you believe that people with a different skin color are less human and less valuable, that leads to injustice. So what really overcomes injustice in society is the truth. And when we can understand what is true in all these sorts of issues, that's going to be our path to justice. Sometimes it'll be complicated. Sometimes it'll be hard to discern and messy. But just there's always a perfect accord between true justice and true truth, if that makes sense. We don't have, we have we're, we're past time. Um, again, this is the joy of what the gospel does when it changes lives and hearts. We get to live according to truth. And living according to truth is the most joyful, blessed way to live. And we want to see everyone else experience that as well. To, from the rivers to the ends of the earth, that God would have dominion from sea to sea. That his glory would cover the world as the waters covers the seas. Uh, that's our call and cry as Christians. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are reigning through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are so thankful that you have subdued our wicked and rebellious hearts and brought them into the kingdom of your son, that kingdom of light, bringing us out of the kingdom of darkness. Lord, but still we see so much darkness in the world, so much suffering, so much pain, so much evil. And we pray that Christ would come, that he would come in his fullness and come in his power to bring freedom to the oppressed, to bring healing to the broken, to bring light to those who walk in darkness, that we would see more and more families of the earth worshiping God, Lord, would that be our heart's cry until that day when we worship you in glory with all of your redeemed people, the whole church of God from sea to sea, from every tribe and tongue. Lord, make us worshipers now and prepare us for that day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.